Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Quick note, this episode was recorded back in September of 2020. Today, I'm speaking with Peter Erskine. Peter Erskine is a world-renowned drummer and composer who appears on over 700 albums and film scores and has won two Grammy Awards. He has played with many artists and groups, including Steely Dan, Weather Report, Stan Kenton, Maynard Ferguson, Joni Mitchell, and Diana Krall, as well as the Los Angeles, New York, and Berlin Philharmonics and the London Symphony Orchestra. That's just the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) He has appeared on film scores, including all three Austin Powers films, The Adventures of Tintin, Memoirs of a Geisha, and La La Land. As a composer, he has completed musical scores for Twelfth Night, Hamlet, and A Midsummer Night's Dream, the latter being honored by the Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle with the award for Best Original Musical Score. He produces jazz recordings for his independent record label, Fuzzy Music, with four additional Grammy nominations to its credit. He has authored several highly regarded musical instruction books for Hal Leonard and Alfred Publications. His newest book, co-authored with Dave Black, is called The Musician's Lifeline, which presents important wisdom from over 150 professional musicians on a variety of musical and life topics. Peter is also the Professor of Practice and Director of Drumset Studies at the University of Southern California's Thornton School of Music. And on a personal note, he was my mentor and drumset teacher for four years at USC. Peter, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you, Serge. And mighty proud I am of you. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Not only as a a wonderful musician and complete all-around talent, but uh, uh, mostly as a human being. And uh, we have to give credit to your parents and your entire family, wonderful people. And uh, it was... uh, uh, great joy to see you graduate, as it were, during your uh, senior recital. Uh, it was just a, a magnificent work and uh, quite reflective, uh, now that I think of it, of uh, this podcast. It was art in all its forms, you know, whereas most students would just you know, play music. You wanted to incorporate acting and uh, the spoken word, uh, music from uh, all different parts of the Thornton School of Music and, and the musical world, and uh, and the theme of social justice. Uh, so uh, you were actually uh, not only a person of your time, I think you were a bit ahead of your time. We've all become much more aware of uh, of, of needing to, to state the obvious, that black lives matter, um, and, uh, and, and that this is so much a part of of everything that we do and that we speak of, not just out of necessity too, but uh, really out of, out of want, I, at least for the people I know. Um, thank you very much for your kind words. I really appreciate that. Uh, well, that's a good place to start, actually. You know, we're, we're right now in the middle of multiple crises, I think, in this country, um, one having to obviously do with the coronavirus and the other having to do with um, the recent protests surrounding the killing of black men in America uh, with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and, and others, and most recently, um, Jacob Blake. And I feel like in some ways jazz is, is really at the, the center of, of both of these in kind of a, a unique way in that uh, we both have live performances and, and we're playing with each other um, and also uh, jazz music is, is really centered around, you know, African-American, black American music. And so why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, sort of what's happening in the jazz world uh, in regards to uh, what we are currently dealing with? Well, um, I, I think your uh, characterization of, of jazz as uh, black American music or contemporary black music uh, works better uh, in the context of, of this discussion, in part because jazz as a label uh, tends to uh, 
kind of pigeonhole the scope of the music. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and so you know, you say jazz, most people are going to think of bebop. Um, uh, you know, or Dave Brubeck or something. And, right. uh, uh, you know, the drum set, that instrument that, you, that, that called out to both you and me when we were young, um, was born of jazz music. It's, it's, a, it's a creature and creation of jazz. Uh, so in a sense, jazz permeates all music. Uh, that we listen to today, it, uh, you know, jazz is really responsible um, for uh, rhythm section music. If I can take that liberty, the rhythm, you know, uh, this is a very bastardized history of things, but you know, basically came from Africa by way of the Caribbean, um, and much of the uh, harmonic content. I don't want to. Uh, uh, I could say maybe formulated or formalized in Europe. Um, the melodies uh, are universal. Um, so much of jazz is is call and response, and so enslaved peoples, you know, did a lot of uh, uh, call and response. Um, drums were forbidden in 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 many parts of the South or uh, in other parts of the Caribbean where uh, people were working as slave labor. Uh, so yeah, I think the 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 beautiful knee-jerk reaction of jazz—it's—it's it's, it's about freedom, and maybe on 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 an instinctive level, that's what attracts people to it. Um, and not just that it that it sounds cool or it's hip, or, um, that's it as well. Yeah, we're teaching by way of video now. Uh, that's been a good rabbit hole for me to uh, to go down, uh, just in terms of having a place to put my energy because we can't teach in person. And the original plan was for the University of Southern California to have some kind of a hybrid semester. And the, uh, the schools of the arts were given a priority in terms of, um, you know, we could have students on campus because the university recognized the need for students to play together in ensembles and to have musical instruments to, to practice on. It's a challenge to, to, to not only to teach uh, through a, a computer screen, but I think for a student to learn through a computer screen. What I'm finding though is that everyone's putting their best foot forward. And with that much positive energy on both sides of the equation, as a teacher, it feels to me that the lessons are actually working as well or better than when I was teaching in person. And, and this was a big surprise to me. I didn't expect this. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that. I think that uh, as musicians, more than ever now, we, we don't take for granted what, what, we ha- what we had before, which was the ability to, to play with others. Um, and I just think back to my time at USC. We had a class, Jazz Elements, the first one, which was taught by Bob Mincer, and then the second by Alan Pasqua. And, you know, the class is just getting the students together from our grade and, and playing in combos. And um, I think that n- now seeing that students aren't able to do that at the moment, I think that we're all kind of itching to still experience as much music as possible. And we're not taking it for granted knowing that, you know, something that we had is has been taken away from us momentarily and, and we're trying to make the best of it, whatever we can do at the moment. I, I hope it's... Momentarily, I mean, certainly things will change back to some sort of routine or world where we can um, be in the presence of others. Uh, things aren't going to go back the way they were, though. I think I think education has changed, and and this maybe is not a bad thing. I mean, technology doesn't roll itself back, you know, and so for better or worse, we've now embraced this, and I think we'll just make the best of it. What's also happening with, uh, at least as far as the students go, Serge, is that we're, we're teaching everyone or, the, or the, op- the, the, the moment is teaching everyone and giving them the opportunity to become their own producers. You know, the old model of testing was uh, you've got however many minutes to take this exam, no cheating, and, and now it's like you take all the time you need. Uh, whether you get this in the first take or the fourth take, 
you know, you don't need to divulge that information to me. I don't really care. Um, what I'm interested in is, is can you create something that's representative and, and that you can send to us w with confidence that this is what I sound like? And I think that's, that's a good, good skill set to uh, encourage and develop in students. And, and it's not something that the traditional music school has done. It's always been this kind of testing, you know, in the moment. Come in, play your jury. You spoke about it. The nervousness, the insecurity that, that this process, kind of like an audition. Right. It felt like I was re-auditioning for the program <laughs> each time I did it. Um, yeah, and know, and we, yeah. Nobody likes juries. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, we've talked about this at length in, in, in our lessons that there's like this phenomenon of, of, like, of overcompensating um, when you're in the jury, which just inevitably leads you to sounding like the high school version of yourself, like the version of yourself who's forgotten the things you've learned and you kind of just go back to, um, I don't know, whatever feels more fundamental to you, I guess. Habit. Um, Habit. Yeah, right. That's right. That's the better word. And um, I can imagine it's got to be uh, good, I think, for students to, to have the opportunity to, to really put their best foot forward each time. Um, although, of course, there is something to be learned about having to, to be in that live situation and dealing with that pressure as well. So it goes both ways, I, don't, you know, I imagine. That moment when you realize things aren't going so well, sometimes the, the, the playing window is, is small enough where it's going by so quick uh, that there's not much to be done to rescue the moment. It's just, wow, well, okay, that's, that's what happened. Um, other times, uh, I, I remember uh, I was recording, um, the, uh, you, you mentioned the film, The, the Adventures of, of Tintin, or, or it might be pronounced Tonton. But this is a, a Steven Spielberg animation, and I remember the iPad had just come out. And, and there's Steven Spielberg walking uh, across the uh, soundstage of, of, of Sony Pictures. This used to be the MGM soundstage. And uh, there he is with his iPad filming all this stuff. And uh, we're going to run down uh, the theme. And it's about a 35 to 40 piece orchestra. It's not huge. And uh, there I am on an old vintage kit right in front of Maestro John Williams. <laughs> and he says, all right, let's, uh, let's play this. And I don't hear a click track in my phones. I don't hear anything in my phones. And they're like, it's that kind of quiet in my phones that I know, uh-oh, they're not working. <laughs> and he's looking at me like, okay, come on, play. And I've never heard the, the music and we're all kind of spread out, even though I'm in front of him, you know, and I'm not sure how much or how little he wants uh, because we haven't really discussed it yet. And uh, it's, I just make a total mess of things. And he stops and uh, he thinks for half a second. He says, okay, he goes, uh, let's try it without the drums for the time being. Oh, boy. And um, yeah, totally, oh, boy. And I'm like, well, so I took a deep breath and uh, I laughed to myself. I said, it's, it can, I don't know if it can possibly get any worse than, than it is right now at this moment. So that means you really don't have much to lose here. And mm. I think what you need to do is get your headphones working and uh, let's start all over. So uh, I quietly found the technician and he went, oh, yeah, your phones aren't working. And we got them fixed. And eventually uh, John Williams uh, uh, released me from timeout and let me back <laughs> into the orchestra. Uh, <laughs> And then we were able to uh, play. Now, here's something interesting, because we're talking about art in all its forms. Mm -hmm. and, and we think of music as being um, the realm of self-expression and individualism. Uh, of course, when you're in an orchestra, you have to subsume much of that, you know, or sublimate that creative urge into the, the greater good kind of thing. Yeah, right. And, uh, which is part of the reason uh, I think artists... Uh, generally, not to get political, but why not, uh, that artists are liberals because artists, despite people thinking that we're egocentric, we really do care about the greater good. That's how the art works, particularly for drummers. However one might might imagine, uh, the, the, you know, musicians or their musical impulses, uh, 
John Williams gave us a very interesting direction. He said, uh, he said, the important thing for everyone to remember is that you should not attempt to add any expressiveness that is not specifically notated on the paper. He said, the full realization of the ex, uh, you know, expressiveness of this piece will take place if everyone plays, you know, what's in front of them. And okay, fine, I got that. Um, so I'm I'm playing. Uh, it, it's kind of like in in two. One, two, one, two, do 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 and then the drums come in with this afterbeat. One, two, one, two, 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 just on a hi hat, and hi hat and snare drum, and that's all I'm playing. And at one point, at the end of an eight-bar phrase, you know, I'm tapping like this, and I, as I got to the end of the phrase, I kind of went. I just I did a little crescendo, decrescendo. Mm-hmm. Just kind of instinctively, almost. And I, I'm listening to the playback, and as soon as I heard it, I went, oh, boy. He was right. I mean, it stuck out like a sore thumb. It had no business doing that. There was no reason for that to happen because I was attempting individual expression, and uh, immediately it, it, it weakened the entire thing. Uh, so that was a fascinating lesson to learn. And, and, and the other uh, good news is, uh, you know, the, the old cliche, you get, you get one chance to make a, a first impression. So I think my first impression, at least as far as Spielberg was concerned, if he was paying attention, he might not have been at all. <laughs> but it could not have been a good one. But luckily, I had worked with John Williams before, so. <laughs> it worked out all right. <laughs> you had, the, you had, well, the, you had except, the credit. Well, except he hasn't called me for a film since, but um, <laughs> I'm grateful I got to do two films with him, and, and I've done some stuff uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. But so it goes. Well, I mean, you know, because usually I, I start these episodes by talking about my guest's biography. And you have this wonderful autobiography entitled No Beethoven, which I, I recently read. Um, and I highly recommend to anyone who wants to get a more in-depth perspective on your life and, and your career. Why don't you really quickly, just before I, I sort of continue on, on where you were, uh, just give us an idea of how you started to play the drums. And, you know, what you, some of your career highlights are, even though I, I talked about some of them. And, and uh, if, if we spent, you know, this conversation talking about your career in its totality, I don't think the hour is this long enough. No, not even close. Well, not, not at the speed I talk. I, you know, whenever we have a family get together, my, my daughter Maya is like, just, you know, okay, come on. She, <laughs> she wants, wants to complete every sentence for me. Uh, my father was a psychiatrist. By the time I was born, before that, he uh, had been a bass player. That's how he worked his way through uh, medical school and college. And uh, so I had two older sisters and one older brother, but none of them really took to music. And uh, I came along a few years later. I was the fourth child. And, uh, yeah, I, I took to music. It wasn't banging on pots and pans. My father had a... Had a conga drum sitting around the house, and, and I began playing on that as, as 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 soon as I could. And he was always playing jazz, and so uh, nature plus nurture, possibly. I just always wanted to be a drummer, and and loved music, and and I got incredible support from my parents and my siblings. As as you know, Serge, practicing the drums is not uh, something you can do quietly. No. Um, and 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 they were all really great sports about it. Uh, I uh, I would get my jazz fix. I mean, I, I had a wonderful teacher. I started taking lessons when I was five. Uh, teacher's name was Johnny Severa, and um, very handsome guy. He 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 could have been a, a one of the stars in The Sopranos. He just was this. He had the the, the quintessential New Jersey Italian kind of wise guy look. Uh, but like really handsome. I, you know, I wanted to be him when I grew up. I, I thought mm-hmm. he was very cool. Um, and, and so that it was great to admire my teacher that much. And 
And then he and my mom uh, signed me up for a summer camp. Um, it was called the, I think it was the Stan Kenton uh, Stage Band Camp or National Stage Band Camp. Um, they weren't jazz camps. You, you couldn't use the word jazz back then. Um, it wasn't allowed in schools. So you had stage bands, you had the lab band, the one o'clock band, the two o'clock band in North Texas. Mm -hmm. um, jazz was still a dirty word somehow. Um, but at this first summer camp I went to, check out some of the other students who were there. Now, I didn't know them at the time. I was only seven. Um, Keith Jarrett, Don Grolnick, Randy Brecker, David Sanborn. That's yeah, a wild list. <laughs> Lou Marini Jr., Jim McNeely. I mean, it goes on and on. So, yeah, Gary Burton was also a student at those camps. So, yeah, I became friends with a lot of these uh, musicians. And this was where uh, many of us, uh, where we learned jazz and got our jazz uh, fix of sorts, you know. Then I went uh, went away to high school. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, near Atlantic City. Uh, I went to a place called the Interlochen Arts Academy. And so when I was 14, I pretty much left home. And uh, my family, uh, it was all the other students there and, and, and a relatively young faculty. But they were our teachers and mentors. And uh, I, I spent a wonderful three years there playing in the symphony orchestra and in the, the jazz band. And then I went to college. It always amuses me now being a college professor uh, when a student applies to USC. And I'll, I'll ask, you know, how many other schools have you applied to? And it'll always be like nine or ten other schools or you know, yeah. six minimum, generally like eight or something. And yeah, we're told by our counselors to, to apply to, to as many as, as, as we can within reason. Wow. Uh, well, um, there you go. It's, I, I applied to one school, Indiana University. I applied, I got in, I went. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I knew I wanted to go there, and I knew who I wanted to study with, the professor there, and 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 so that was all remarkably kind of simple, and uh, we got right to work uh, on the basics. So I had left high school being uh, you know a bit of the the uh, not the star quarterback on the musical teams, but uh, you know a little bit of a hot shot, um, and. I spent the best year just working on a practice pad. So that's like being a football star. And, and then when you go to uh, get to the next level of your training, you just do sit-ups for six months, mm -hmm. you know, it's like that. And, and so I learned a lot about touch, yet I wasn't ready to really, not to absorb it, but to utilize what I was learning. Uh, because I went on the road. And then when you're performing, you, you do whatever's necessary to get the job done. And so you develop a lot of bad habits. And, and these bad habits were made in public uh, for three years with the Stan Kenton Band. <laughs> uh, so I decided to go back to college. And um, uh, my touch had gotten quite a bit uh, less symphonic, let's say, or orchestral. And I was playing the drums with a very loud jazz band. So I spent another year trying to get closer to the, 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 the ideal or the goal was to be able to produce a good tone. I remember one of my lessons uh, in the middle of things, Gaber, uh, George Gaber, my teacher, uh, handed me a triangle beater. And I, 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 I've told you this in one of our lessons. And, and he pointed to a triangle that was uh, hanging in the corner of the room. He said, now go over there, play a note, mezzo piano, you get one chance. So I go over and I play it. He just takes a puff on a cigar, shakes his head from side to side. He said, that was too loud. Said, now get out. <laughs> and that was my lesson. You know, right. <laughs> I, I started practicing playing soft. But again, you know, I went on the road now playing with Maynard Ferguson's band. And that was really loud. And then I joined Weather Report. That's even louder. <laughs> um, yeah. I was just listening to the, to those, uh, the live tapes. Yeah, uh, and I was like, "Man, does Peter sound very different?" We're, we're hitting it pretty hard. So, yeah, but it's great. So but. it took a long time for me to to kind of walk all that back and and get to a place where not only I liked the sound of the instrument more, but I wasn't fighting the instrument as much. So 
that's my background. I, uh, you know, I, I lived in New York for several years, uh, played with Michael Brecker and Mike Minieri in a band called Steps Ahead. Uh, I worked with John Abercrombie a lot. I, I, uh, I started traveling quite a bit to Europe, playing with musicians who were based there, and then finally uh, was getting tired of that trip. It's a, it's a long flight to make over and over and over again from Los Angeles. If, if, uh, if we had set up uh, you know, our home base on the East Coast uh, you know, in New York or something, maybe things would have been different, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't trade the experience uh, we've had living in California for anything. You know, we love Los Angeles, and it was a great place for both of our children to grow up and my wife and I to enjoy all of that. And so, uh, yeah, lived in the same house for the last you know, 34 yeah, no, years. Yeah, I mean, L.A. is... Yeah, no, I mean, L.A. is... L.A. is a special city, and as much as I, I can really get, uh, I can, I can be driven crazy by the traffic and stuff like that. I think you know, especially now when there's a little bit less traffic, I've just been driving around and experiencing the city in a different way, and it's just, it is something special, for sure. I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I was getting to the point when I lived in New York, I would get depressed every time the tr the, the airplane was circling to land, and I realized when I would come come home to L.A., I'd always start smiling a little bit. You know, and there are other albums too. The ones that you talked about that you recorded on ECM, which for those of you who don't know, that's a German jazz and classical record label. But you know, you play very sparsely, and and people usually think about drummers as playing loud and and getting in your face and uh, hitting things really hard. But that's not your approach. And in in our lessons, you, know, you always stressed having an intention for what you play and making the drums speak. And, and sound good. So can you talk more about that like philosophy of, of anti-drumming? Do you well, still like that term? I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I, I may be one of the few drummers, if not the only drummer to have started um, one of his solo albums with a ballad, you know, playing the brushes. The, my father, it took him a while to get used to that. He would he'd say, oh, you're not playing enough drums on this record. That's uh, it's okay, dad. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not it's not an, a drumming album it's, it's 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 music and 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 then he finally you know he got used to that but it, I, I you know I, I wish he'd been around when I when I wound up doing the Dr. Um stuff because he would have gotten a kick out of that he was waiting for me to, to, to get back into the funk a little bit yeah um but uh, you know let, uh, the ECM albums for example uh, so much of that was really determined by the sound of the room that we were recording in. And, Interesting. Um, I'm not so much anti-drumming, really, uh, I, but I'm more uh, sound aware. Uh, so if I'm in a very live room, the room, let's say if it's a trio, the piano, bass, and drums, the room becomes the fourth musician. It's the fourth element, the fourth voice, let's say, that really needs to be respected. And so I was just responding to the sound. And I used to envy, you know, I would, I would think about Tony Williams and you know, a million reasons to envy the way Tony played the drums. But one of the things that I thought was great, even though it was not my way, was uh, Tony would, would barrel through and play any piece of music on his terms. You, you, you want Tony Williams, this is what you get. Mm -hmm. And and I, I liked that. I thought it was great. And I also recognized that wasn't me. And at one point, I even said to someone, I said, you know, I don't even know if I self-identify so much as a drummer as I do an accompanist. So much of what I do is really just uh, helping others realize through this piece of music, whatever it is we're, we're trying to get done. Uh, and that's not just in the case of... of working with vocalists, even though I, I wound up doing quite a bit of that. Joni Mitchell, Mary Chapin Carpenter, just those two right there, just wonderful experiences. 
I think this. I said this to you, Serge, in the very beginning of, of, of our studies. I said, we, we can make this short and sweet. If, if you're curious what to do, I said, just, just play what you'd like to hear. Yeah. You know, don't, don't play what you think I want to hear. Play what you want to hear. So this guides your choices in terms of dynamic balance, in terms of density, how much you're going to play, where you're going to play it on the kit. You know, the, the textural considerations, the tonal in terms of pitch, the volume, the sound you're getting, um, how, how many sounds do you want to start generating? Uh, because sounds beget more sounds in terms of reverberation. And that's getting a little bit technical, but, you know, does it sound good? Great. Does it feel good? Does it, does it dance? If it dances, then fine. We don't have to really talk too much about it. It's funny. The reason I, I ask you about like this anti-drumming concept and, and how you so eloquently described that the room is sort of this fourth uh, musician or this instrument here. You know, I had this epiphany, which I, I may have spoken to you about at, when I was studying with you at USC, about just the number of parallels I found between my drumming and my acting. I remember I was in a lesson with you, and I think you, you had me, maybe I was showing a combo recording uh, or something like that to you, and you said something along the lines of, Serge, you might want to play less and listen more. There was some things that you didn't catch that the pianist was doing, and um, that could have, you know, really influenced the way that you play. All right, be honest. Did I say, Serge, you might want to? No, I, no, you I, said. No, I probably Serge, said, why the, why the hell are you playing? <laughs> yeah, right. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah right. Why are, you, why are you playing so much? <laughs> yeah, why, why are you playing over this guy? <laughs> and, you know, that was on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday, which is when we had our lessons, and then. On that Saturday, almost verbatim, my acting teacher said, Suraj, you talked over something and it felt like you were talking to fill up space and, and you might want to just, you know, wait for a second and listen to what they had to say. And, and that could have taken the scene in a, in a more natural way. And I just started finding all of a sudden like this parallel everywhere where we talk about serving the music as a actors, we talk about serving the text. Mm -hmm. Um and actually what you said about the about John Williams is is a kind of similar to how you know actors who are on like uh Aaron Sorkin shows they talk about how listen you don't need to change any words you just need to say them the way that that they're written and that in and of itself is is all that it needs the humor is there you know the text has it all it's mm -hmm. right there for you so i was just wondering you know did you find inspiration for like this musical aesthetic in other artistic forms, or, or did it just sort of come naturally to you in terms of just sound? I think a lot of the information I get, a lot of it came from listening. You know, just uh, the, the kind of listening that, that we did, uh, I'm gonna sound like the old timer now, but when we had vinyl records and we would get an album and the album was, you know, maybe 15 to 18 minutes per side uh, and You'd get that one record and you would listen to it from start to finish over and over again. And if you liked the record and, and you're looking at the liner notes and looking at the photos and, and just daydreaming about this whole thing and kind of inhabiting this wonder world that, that the album represented. And that's a much different relationship to the music than catching something on YouTube or having you know 10,000 songs sitting on your phone or something. And and the context of the album too, you know, it wasn't a song-oriented thing so much. I mean, the radio was, but I wasn't that much of a radio person. I really loved listening to records. So my artistic database had a, had a pretty strong foundation. I, I, I could put it that way. I liked film. I think I became uh, aware of the parallels, but. First, by, by doing some reading, I, I was very interested in the work and biographies of Orson Welles. Hmm. I just found him to be a very fascinating character. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then working with a, a director who was my best friend in high school. His name is Jack Fletcher. And when I was still living in New York City, uh, Jack called me up when we were talking about something. He said, hey, how would you like to write music for a production of, and I interrupted him. I said, yeah. He said, I didn't even tell you the play. I said, it doesn't matter. And he, he said, it's Richard II. I said, great, let's do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, 
you know, of course, I I I uh, I had to do a lot more uh, reading of plays than I than I had done. You know, I, I did like everybody did. You read some plays for for, for English class or whatever. Um, but now I'm really trying to understand the text. Uh, I always got a greater understanding speaking with Jack about it when we would kind of spot the play for music. Um, but it was watching him directing the actors, you know, in, uh, during the rehearsal process and hearing the things he said that I finally started making the connection between music and and acting and directing and 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 finding that universality in in all the arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. One of the one of the choices I made that I was very proud of at USC was that my my final semester, as I was putting together my senior recital and and writing this play, and composing the music, is I was taking a uh, like a general survey Shakespeare course in the English department, and it was one of like the great moments where you know, week by week, things would come together on all sides. And one of the pieces that I ended up composing, and, and it's um, in the, the text of my plays, and yet we have some revenge, which is from Othello. And once I got to college, and I sort of, we were able to look at music in a, on a more detailed level, and we're not just talking about the mechanics of it, you, you really do find like, the connections between spoken word and music, things like musical punctuation, or uh, in comedy we have like the rule of three, and in jazz we, we tag things three times, like that's just a common way of ending things. What's what's the rule of three? So in comedy you'll like, if you're setting up a joke, you'll sort of have two very basic things that you say, and then it's always the third thing that's the surprise, or ah. it subverts what you expect is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, and we talk about that all the time. And then when we talk about tagging things, we always tag things twice. And then the third time is the different. It's the, it's the surprise. And so I, I don't know why we're attracted to that, but in the same way, like we're talking about with the golden ratio or, or, or the, uh, the overtone series, you tend to find these, like these little connections. And I, I don't think that they're just coincidence. Peter Brook describes this, uh, really great theatrical exercise. And, and I, uh, stolen it and used it in uh, masterclass settings. Uh, it's where you take 10 people and you give each one of them one word from the speech in Hamlet, uh, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question. So each one, each person gets a word. And you line them up and you say, all right, go. And you get to be or not to be, that is the question. <laughs> say, okay, uh, that had a pretty good rhythm to it, uh, but it didn't really move me or touch me. And, and someone might not be speaking forcefully enough, so you remind them that we want to reach the person who's sitting in the last row. Let's try it again. And maybe with a little bit more emotion, well, how do you do that if you only have one word? And, and, and slowly but surely, everyone starts understanding that the art or the act of listening uh, depends not only on listening to what's immediately preceding your entrance, but also listening to what follows. And you really learn how to listen to things as a whole because now you're invested in the totality of of how this sentence Mm. is expressed and you gain uh, even more insight and understanding and awareness of how your word is best spoken. So uh, just a simple little demonstration highlights immediately uh, the, the power of listening, which is another way of saying the power of paying attention. It's funny. We, you talk in your book as well about this idea of proactive drumming versus reactive drumming. And I, I just, this is a genuine question because I feel like there's a little bit of a paradox there with, with listening and, you know, the off, obvious thing to do then is to react. But that's not necessarily what serves the music the best. So how, how do you think about that? Yeah, if, if we're purely reactive, uh, there's a very fine line between reactive and, and imitative or, or just saying back what, what the other creative entity has put out there, as opposed to providing counterpoint. 
Now, you know, one of the rules of acting, of course, is uh, when you said you have the rule of three, you also have the rule of yes, you know, in improv. Yep. You, in, you introduce a topic, we go with it. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm breaking one of the cardinal rules of acting, but uh, you can also introduce something that's quite a bit uh, off kilter to, to what's, been, what's been brought up. It, 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 as, as long as there's some relationship if it's completely random then it then it's uh, it, it borders on uh, you know being psychotic i think but sometimes and this is where wayne shorter was very brilliant because wayne um and i don't even want to put it in that 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 paradigm of oh he's you know playing three-dimensional chess um but but wayne yeah wayne was playing playing chess but just like in a different planet in a different dimension almost it it you could finally uh, understand that you could connect the dots well you know it's it's interesting because actually one of my acting teachers gripes is with the yes and uh with that rule because she says that it if you're really in the zone and you're paying attention you can also set up contradictions and conflicts between people where one person says no and the comedy can come from that and as long as everyone's on the same page it's much better than just kind of meandering mm. and continuing to just follow what the other person had set up all the time. And you talk about this in your book because you talk about how, oh, I'm forgetting. Maybe that was the, when Zawinul was talking about playing something and like you had oh, taken what Wayne had played. Well, that was Wayne Shorter again, yeah. Uh, may I tell the story? Sorry to... Sure, yeah, of course. So we were recording uh, a series of concerts for this live album. The live album was called 8.30. And that's the album that won a Grammy. Just connecting the dots here. I yes, congratulations. I normally don't brag about that. <laughs> um, and it was funny, the, the, the night that, that the Grammy was awarded, we, we didn't even know the album was nominated. Someone happened to mention it, and we, we watched the broadcast. <laughs> and, I, and as I recall, Debbie Boone announced it, and she mispronounced the name of the, title, the, name of the album, I think. She, 8.30? Yeah, I think she... I don't know what... Did she call it eight hundred and thirty or or uh, <laughs> eight? I, I I mean you know nobody prompted her. She's just looking at a cue card, I guess, or something. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, I just remember all like, hey, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So, um, so anyway, as we're mixing the album, uh, it's, it's just myself, Joe Zavano, and an engineer in the studio. I'm still pretty new in the band, and we're listening back, and, and this is a part of the tune called Black Market where Wayne and I, the, the tenor saxophone and the drums, are playing in duet. And so I'm sort of half playing a beat and half kind of in, interacting, improvising with him. And, you know, and every night I used to pinch myself. What, you know, what am I doing? Playing with Wayne Shorter. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. So uh, I stand next to Joe, who's standing near one of the big speakers that are mounted on the wall and and joe turns to me and gives me a kind of mm, was, you know, sounds good and compliments from from him were rare so i'm like well all right you know kind of puffing my chest out a little bit and uh just around that time on the tape you can hear wayne playing a a, a series of repeated notes and he he goes up the scale as he plays them the sequence so it's a kind of thing like that. So, you know, I heard him playing those, and I could predict that he would play a few more, and so I played it with him. I was being a good listener. I was, I was on the same wavelength, you know. I'd heard them do that kind of thing on a, on a lot of Miles records. Yeah. And just at that moment during the playback, Zavonel turns to me with a very sour look and just says, uh, too bad you had to do that. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? You know, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And later in the rehearsal, uh, I did the same thing again while Wayne was playing something. And Wayne stopped and said, don't do that. And how I explained that to you in the lesson was that if the rhythm section is setting up, let's say, uh, you know, a nice blue background and the soloist cuts a, a brilliant uh, yellow diagonal, you know, across that cool blue background, that's mm -hmm. not our signal to, uh, okay, everybody, yellow, yellow, change to yellow. The yellow f works as a great 
contrast because we stay blue. So that's important to at least encourage, if not, let's say, inculcate or uh, really develop a young musician's sense of not being tempted. Because when we, just like that John Williams thing, if we serve this more common group thing somehow and not, you know, not be like the dog in, um, what was that? Was that up? Uh, yeah. Every, you know, squirrel. Right. <laughs> yeah, squirrel. You know, we don't get tempted by the squirrel. So I, I wanted to move to some, well, I guess a more practical question. You know, well, I guess back when, 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 when you had live sessions and, and were able to, you know, play with orchestras and stuff, you know, you had to split up your time between teaching, being a sideman on other people's albums, being a drummer producer on your own records, playing for film scores. And then, you know, I saw you uh, playing drums on West Side Story with the LA Phil. And how do you go about managing your time and how do you go about managing your brain, I guess, um, because each one of these sort of sometimes musically divergent endeavors, you know, you have to find a cohesive way to still be a, an artist and have an identity in that. So how do you think about doing that? I don't know how well I, I, I managed to organize it, but I think like everybody, you just do the best you can. The lockdown and the pandemic revealed the, the response of a lot of folks to be what, what became known as a productivity porn, you know, showing a, wow, well, you know, I planted a whole garden uh, this morning and um, <laughs> right. and I'm finishing up my, uh, my, my second book about uh, this side or the other. I, I, you know, it's like, all right, enough already. It's, it's it's, okay. It always ends up on Instagram or Facebook where everyone else has to kind of look at it and be like, oh, darn, if only I was that productive. Yeah, yeah. And, and so then we start guilt tripping ourselves or, oh, I should be doing more. Um, I, I've always had a, a, a genuine interest in, in lots of different things uh, to the point where Manfred Eicher of the ECM label, the founder and producer, it concerned him. He said, I, I really uh, don't think it's a great idea that you're doing all these different things. And my response was, well, that, you know, number one, I got, a, I got two kids in private school and so I, I have to work this much. But the, each one of these things informs another part of my playing. So I, I feel that I'm becoming a, a, a better musician, a better informed drummer because of all these things that I'm doing. However, you know, I, I never uh, quite had the focus uh, uh, or, or could achieve the kind of success that many artists have because they did focus their laser beam so effectively. You know, I write a book uh, most other people, if they wrote the book, they would just spend the next two years promoting only the book, you know, and, and being quite successful at that. I write the book and, okay, boom, time for the next thing. So a lot of my work eventually finds a, a pretty decent-sized audience, but I've never been great about maximizing that audience or maybe maximizing my message to give to that audience because I do... I do this and I do that, and, and that's, that's just the way I am. And, and I like teaching, and I, I, I like to think that I do justice to all the various things I do. Uh, but it's, it's kind of like playing style, Serge. You know, when, when I was younger, I, I thought I can be the drummer that, that can do everything. And, and, and I'll be honest, when it comes to versatility, for a while I was one of the most versatile drummers around. You know, I mean, a drummer who could very effectively and honestly handle a Steely Dan gig and turn around and do an ECM session, uh, not as a novelty, but as a, you know, a fully qualified person in that art form and then write music for a play or write a book or do whatever. And, uh, you know, so I, uh, I liked being able to do all those things, but I eventually realized, you know what, you can't do all those things and, and nor should you want to. Mm -hmm. um, I started getting called to do certain things on film dates, and I realized, uh, uh, and, and now often with recording project, I'll just say, uh, you know, I'm not the best drummer for this, and and I, I don't think you'll be as happy as you imagine you might be, and I know I won't be happy, and if I'm not happy, I know you won't be happy. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, 
a lot of times uh, I will excuse myself from projects now if I just don't feel like, you know, I'm, I'm the right person for the job. And plenty of drummers around. Whether I do something or not doesn't really matter. Yeah, I resonate with with a lot of that in terms of I'm, I'm at, obviously at the beginning of of that journey for myself of trying to figure out because um, I do have like this genuine interest in a lot of different fields, but I'm coming up on the that place where I can see drummers who drumming is the thing that they do and, and they're playing with a band or, or they're touring um, or they're going to grad school. And uh, I'm seeing that obviously there is this inherent trade-off just in terms of your time. There's a trade-off of having to uh, not, you know, have that extra hour to listen to the recordings um, and other people are able to absorb that. Um, at the same time, I can't really help it. <laughs> and so I think that that's where I'm, I'm having to also learn uh, and go through the process of figuring out, okay, what am I saying no to at this moment? And it's okay. It may, it may come back. There may be a time, but um, what is at, at, the, at this moment, what is inspiring me to, to move forward and try to keep my focus there? But it's very hard. Well, it, you know, the beauty about Music Surge is it's always going to be there for you. It doesn't go away. The thing that goes away is uh, the speed uh, of, of your reaction time. It's just like if you were an athlete. You know, if you're not constantly training and then you, you get out there playing soccer or football or whatever sport, you don't have that advantage of, of the other athletes and players who that's all they've been doing for the last 10 years. And I can hear it, in, particularly in drummers, because the split-second timing is it's very apparent. You know, it doesn't take much for a beat to sound different, uh, depending on the placement of, of each stroke. And uh, so much of what we do is in response or anticipation of something happening. And players who don't stay active doing that, um, they get a little rusty. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I definitely, I don't want to be that drummer. And I, I still think that despite the lockdown, I have enough of a battery charge of, of good response time in my system that, you know, I'm not like, uh, some drummers who, you know, kind of laid off for a few years and really dedicated themselves to, let's say, teaching. And then you'd hear them in a concert or, or in a record date, and you could just, wow, they, they just they seem a little bit out of the game there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, but then they get it back, too. You know, uh, uh, So I guess everything in life is kind of like riding a bicycle. Once you learn how to do it, you can... <laughs> Yeah, it, it comes back. It may just take some, you know, take some concerted it, it effort. It might just to... take, a, take a minute. Your muscles may be sore for a second. Uh, so tell me about your new book, uh, The Musician's Lifeline. So what was the, the inspiration for it, and how do you hope it, it impacts musicians who, who read it? The Musician's Lifeline was uh, the response to uh, the success that a book called The Drummer's Lifeline enjoyed, uh, something I wrote also with, with Dave Black. And I think he even said, I, th I think we should, we should write a, a book called The Musician's Lifeline. And, um, and what should it be? And, and I said, I know a lot of people. And how about if I come up with a series of questions and I ask all these people the same set of questions? So basically seven questions. What's the best advice you've ever received? What's the best advice you've ever given? What's the one thing you'd have done differently in your studies or career? Best travel advice, which right now is kind of a moot point, but <laughs> still some good advice in there. Best sight reading advice. Do you have any business advice for a musician or any advice relating to people skills? And then we also added uh, audition advice from a select group of musicians and educators. Uh, I sent these questions out to 250 people. We got responses from 165. So Dave Black, along with um, one of the uh, editors and a graphics designer uh, who both work at Alfred Publishing, uh, came up with a, with a brilliant layout scheme. And the book is so much fun to read and, and visually uh, it draws you in, it's entertaining. Uh, and you're getting advice from just some of the greatest musicians uh, from all 
all musical genres and styles and, and all aspects of the music business, the music manufacturing, you know, the music industry, the, uh, the people that do promotion, managers, singers, songwriters. Uh, if we focus, we, we, we have the points of view of, of a lot of women. It's, it's great advice. It, that, it's that kind of book. It's the kind of book you can, you can either read in one sitting or, or just spend time looking through it. And I, yeah, I, I, I have one more book in me, as far as I know. I've, I've written and published uh, 12 books. I'm proud of the writing thing. And I have, I have one more book of, of uh, anecdotes that I want to combine with photographs somehow. And I'm trying to figure out how to do this. And, and uh, if you're a digital book fan, you know, no Beethoven's available from my website. There's a Kindle version. Um, there's also an Apple uh, iPad version that's amazing that has literally thousands of photographs but there's a very nice in between many photographs and thousands of photographs uh, Hudson Music the Hudson Digital they have a book app and they're publishing a lot of music books or books about music and uh, that includes Musician's Lifeline and the Drummer's Lifeline and No Beethoven so I'm thinking that's where I'll go to publish what I'm guessing may be my, my, my final book uh, because when you don't have to worry about the expense of printing, um, it, you know, you're, you can do some pretty cool things. Uh, anyway, I, I've, I'm, I, I must be boring everyone or I've already bored everyone. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I th- we must have covered everything you wanted to talk about. Yeah, we've covered everything. I, I have just one. Oh, my new album. My new album we should mention. I want to make sure. So that's, that's the newest one, right? Three Nights in L.A.? It's the newest one. And, and I hasten to add, uh, unless I get some digital thing, release, which I want to do. There's, I've, I've been working with the Stanford University Library and, and digitizing and, and scanning and just uh, documenting all forms of, of, uh, of my library, in, including every recorded thing I have collected over the year, years, wow. you know, personal recordings and board tapes of different bands. And so a lot of really great stuff that they can't put out on the internet because of copyright issues. But I'm going to see if there's a few things I can, by getting permission from the people involved, uh, I can get some of this stuff out there. Otherwise, uh, this album, Three Nights in L.A., is the, the kind of the swan song for my record label, Fuzzy Music. The relevance of having a CD label is, is a tricky thing because... Uh, I mean, cars don't even put CD players. Car manufacturers don't put them in cars anymore. And, and, and you know, vinyl is cool, but I don't know. I, I, one of the last albums we printed up, you know, a couple hundred vinyl, and I, I've got a couple hundred vinyl sitting, <laughs> sitting in my closet. It's making a comeback yeah. among some people. Yeah, but... I, you know, I love it. It's great. Yeah. But um, uh, anyway, uh, this final album is, is a three-CD set called Three Nights in L.A., uh, with my longtime uh, musical partner in crime, Alan Pasqua on piano, Dara Coles on bass, and the incredible George Garzon playing saxophone. And it's definitely the, yeah. the best recording of my jazz drumming. And so if, if you might be a fan, uh, I can promise you it's, it's a really great record, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. And you can get it online or uh, from my website or from Amazon those kinds of places. So uh, that was exciting. Uh, I really liked that. And, and the book, Musician's Lifeline. And, and uh, you know, uh, I try to keep the website, uh, petererskine.com, uh, somewhat active. Uh, I, that was one of my other fantasies during the lockdown. I thought, oh, good. You know, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. Um, <laughs> yeah. Gardening got in the way and then uh, setting up my, my home studio to, to make the best possible distance learning uh, setup, and it's pretty good now. So it's exciting. I, I, can, uh, I can honestly say I, I actually look forward to each teaching day, and I don't have to drive. <laughs> yeah, I know. What a gift, honestly, at this point. Um, yeah, I have to say, I, mean, I was lucky enough to be in the audience for the, I think it was the third, the last night. Oh, that was a good night, yeah. It was great. It was really, really nice. And, oh, and uh, Yeah, I mean, and... and Luke and I both, actually Matt Richards, Luke and I were all commenting on this, that when we heard it in person, we were really digging it. And then when we heard it recorded, it was even more apparent, I don't know, to us, just how 
great it was. And um, you, you talk about this all the time in terms of recording, about letting the mic do the work mm. sometimes and not overplaying. And I think as youngsters, our tendency is like, yeah, well, we want to go in there well, sure and you like do. Really hit the crap out of them. That's what being young's about, man. And and you have to do that, you know. Don't uh, don't deny yourself uh, uh, exuberance. You know, old people uh, dance a little differently, and we definitely walk down the block a little differently than. And that that contrast couldn't be more apparent than when I take our little puppy dog Minnie for a walk. She's bounding <laughs> and bouncing all over the place, and and that's just the way it should be. Peter, th- thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. Um, fun. Thank you for being my, my teacher and my mentor, as, as always. And it's so nice to see you, even though we're doing this virtually, obviously. Um, it's great to see your face. It's great to see you um, in good health and, and doing the things that you do. And uh, hopefully when all this is over, we'll get a chance to, to catch up again and, and see each other in person. <laughs> I look forward to that. Um, Thanks again. Uh, please give my best regards to your family. I'll look forward to that uh, uh, in-person reunion, Serge. And uh, uh, thanks again for the invitation. This, this was a lot of fun. You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forms on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Art in All Its Forms Pod. That's Art in All Its Forms pod. Uh, if you want to send us an email with uh, comments, questions, concerns, musings, you can email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's aiaifpod at gmail.com. Thanks.